Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to The Bunker, your need-to-know on news and politics, seven days a week. I'm Seth Tevil. Work is the curse of the drinking classes. That was the view of Oscar Wilde. Alcohol means many things to many different people. A social leveller, a release, a blight, a pandemic and a joy. Britain has long had a reputation as a hard-drinking nation. But our relationship with alcohol is long and complex. Here to take us through it is Dr James Nichols, a senior lecturer in public health at Stirling University and an expert on drug and alcohol policy. He's also the author of a wonderful book, The Politics of Alcohol. Welcome to The Bunker, James. Thank you so much for having me. Um, Let's start with a very broad question. What do you think drink means to different people? Well, I mean, I think that's what makes drink such an interesting subject and such an interesting thing to study and to think about. It means different things to different people. It means different things to the same people at different times in their lives. You know, I mean, it can mean fun, pleasure. It's about social interaction. It's about identity. It's also about transgression sometimes. It's about escape. It's about feeling different. Um, You know, those are some of the attractions of drink. But then on the kind of dark side, I suppose, you know, it can be about fear, violence, dependence, you know, all of that stuff. It's an incredibly slippery thing. It's a shapeshifter, really, alcohol. It's something that, that changes us when we drink it it's also something whose meaning and our experience of it changes over time through our own lifetimes through our own circumstances and also throughout history so it's a you know that's what makes it interesting that's also what makes it problematic you make a very strong case in the book for how class has influenced the way that different drinks are seen how do we look down on certain types of drinking or among different classes yeah i mean i think one of the interesting things about alcohol historically speaking, is that it's a kind of a cultural constant. You know, it's been there in society through time with variations in terms of the way that we drink and what we drink. But because of that, you can almost look at the way that attitudes to class or attitudes to gender or attitudes to other social factors have changed over time in terms of how our attitudes to drinking have changed. But I think one of the things that is certainly a feature of the the history of attitudes to drinking uh, in Britain and elsewhere is that it is... Uh, shaped by class. The earliest licensing legislation in, in, in Britain in the, in the 16th century was targeted at alehouses. Now, alehouses mm. were places where the poor drank. They drank in relatively unregulated spaces. These were not places that were under the kind of normal purview of power. Um, and you know, a large part of the motivation for their regulation was to do with trying to gain some degree of control over those spaces. And I think that's true you know, throughout time. If you think about drinking amongst the, 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 the poor and the working class, it has been constructed, the idea of the you know, drunken yobs or the drunken masses. We've often had a very, um, the way that we talk about drinking amongst the poor is also a way that society talks about its anxieties about class and projects those onto people's behaviours uh, around their drinking. And there's very much been a sort of looking down on working class drinking. But interestingly enough, you also made a case for how middle class drinking or aristocratic drinking could actually be sort of, you know, the subject of being disapproved of as well. Well, I mean, one of the things about the the, 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 the temperance movement, which you might come on to later, was mm. that with the emergence of a new 
kind of middle class, uh, you know, in the kind of uh, 18th, 19th centuries, that was associated also with new cultural mores and new cultural norms. And the idea of sobriety, allied as it was with ideas around productivity and rationality, you know, became to a degree adopted within new middle class cultures as a way of establishing the fact that those cultures had a place in society and were actually capable of, of moving society forward and, and, and releasing culture, I guess, from these kind of older feudal chains, which were tied up with, 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 with drinking practices and were tied up with the idea of drunkenness as being, you know, something to be celebrated. That, that, that new, and in the Victorian era, this mm. became most pronounced, that new sense of middle-class respectability and sobriety being a really important part of that. And what about, I mean, we've talked about class, but what about the role, say, gender in drink and how men and women are seen to drink differently? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. If you look at the if you look at the way that we've thought about drink over time, it's it's it almost invariably the case that women's drinking has been much more condemned. Although there has been concern and moral judgment directed towards men's drinking, of course, but women's drinking has been singled out really for very particular mm. kinds of of concern, particularly around the role of women as mothers, particularly around kind of um, uh, sexual vulnerability or sexual promiscuity associated with drinking. Mm. So there's a different kind of moral coloration that's always gone on around the way that women's drinking has been thought about. And that, that's certainly true historically. And I think it's still true to an extent today. And how important do you think drink is to an idea of national identity? If you think about how many politicians you've seen pulling a pint behind <laughs> the bar, you know, it's, it's, it's a, an essential photo opportunity for any, you know, uh, would-be prime minister to be photographed pulling a pint behind yeah. the bar. And that, it, that is to do with the symbolic role of beer as a kind of signifier of a, a kind of earthy, down-home Britishness. It, and kind it's of ordinary... the man of the people, John Bull thing. Exactly, exactly so. And, you know, I mean, some of, of the listeners may be familiar with uh, William Hogarth's famous Gin Lane and Beer Street mm. engravings from the height of the gin craze in the 18th century. And what's interesting about those is not only the way that gin is represented and the way that's tied in with concerns about urbanisation and poverty and gender, but the way that beer is, is represented is this kind of safe productive you know all the people in beer street are doing things that mm. are productive and, and beer is associated with a kind of well-earned relaxation linked to productive labor whereas gin is associated with profligacy and laziness and decay um, and i think that's certainly again something that's a feature of British drinking culture, I think it's true of most national drinking cultures, that there are particular types of drinks that come to stand for particular ideals of national identity. I'm so glad you mentioned the, the Beer Street Gin Lane thing of Hogarth, because I'm obsessed with Hogarth. But um, <laughs> genuinely, the, the, this idea of different types of drinks being good or bad, when, when we're talking about gin, I mean, in the 18th century, this is like moonshine. This is not the gin you buy in the shops now. This is homebrew stuff that could make you blind. In a way, gin was our first drug scare. Distilled spirits available at that at that level, you know, and 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 with that degree of availability, was just something that hadn't been seen before. And so it, it triggered those kind of responses that often happen in a society when a new drug enters that culture. To some degree, the concerns about gin drinking in the eighteenth century were entirely justified. There, there, there was a massive increase in, in, in use, and it was creating all sorts of social and health harms. But like any moral panic, those. Um, concerns around gin were also wrapped up with a whole array of other concerns around mm. modernization, around new economic uh, classes who had expendable income. They were spending on things that didn't appear to be, you know, um, productive mm. uh, ab about women, about urban decay. You know, that image from Gin Lane just kind of, it, it 
doesn't just capture a concern about drink. It captures a concern about a whole raft of things that were rolling around in the culture at the time. Let's talk about another type of stimulant drink that comes in, spreads like wildfire in the 17th and 18th century, and that's coffee and the coffee houses, because there are hundreds of these that come out of you know almost nowhere in the mid-17th century. What makes coffee so important alongside alcohol? It's interesting that uh, at the same time as you had this first drug scare slash moral panic around gin, it was around the same time that you had this emergence of this entirely but new social space, which was, you know, we've come to know as the coffee house. Um, now, the coffee houses in London and other major cities were, they were a new milieu, really, for a, an emergent middle class. And that middle class was thinking its way through what democracy meant, what journalism meant, new ways of, of doing trade and doing business. And again, around that kind of notion of cultural identity and that construction of a group identity that, that was about sobriety and rationality and reason and all of those values coffee because it was a, a new drink that had come into the culture that wasn't intoxicating in the same way but it's like in a different way it, it became attached to that now the reality was there was quite a lot of alcohol that went on in coffee houses as well yep. but it, it, but it was partly to do with again the extent to which social and cultural identities are articulated through drinking practices yeah, and it also gives way to this wider society that's part of that. You know, one of the things that about my area of specialism, for example, is the growth of private members clubs, and they come out of coffee houses. And that's true, but it's only part of the story. It's that the illicit gambling is done in a private area around the back of the coffee house, and the coffee house has the sort of respectability of that. You know, it's not a boozy atmosphere. It's very fashionable. It's kind of difficult to get a, a fully accurate sense of, of, of course, what was actually going on in the coffee houses at the time, and the extent to which there was a kind of performance of respectability, yeah. uh, politeness, yeah. All those are the values that they're establishing themselves at the time. And to what extent they were also tied in with the performances of masculinity, which were mm. also about drunkenness and ribaldry and all those, all those other things. I think it's a, you know, because it was such a, a new social phenomenon, all those different things were going on at the same time. Um, the, and what was actually happening and what was being performed and what was being represented are not always going to be exactly the same. Respectability seems to be a long-term fascination of the British, but particularly when something like alcohol, where you're out of control to some degree, is, is involved. Um, can we maybe talk a bit about the temperance movement and where this comes along? Because this is something that must seem incomprehensible to a lot of modern audiences, but it was such a potent political force, I mean, particularly by the late 19th and early 20th century. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for people who, who aren't that familiar, that you know, the temperance movement is really a name that we give to... It's a kind of an umbrella term, really, for an array of... Uh, social advocacy organizations whose focus was either the entire removal of alcohol from society or at least the containing of the role and the influence of alcohol in society. And as you say, it was a sustained, it was a highly influential political movement from kind of the 1820s, 1830s, right through to the 1920s and 1930s. And if you think about it in the United States, of course, it achieved prohibition for a number of years. I know this is mind-boggling to listeners, but uh, in the 1910s, you get these local referenda on whether places should become dry. And, you know, you get cities like Dundee who have a hard-drinking reputation at the time, and you have different wards and districts that say, we don't want to serve alcohol anymore, which is incomprehensible, I think. Uh, yes, uh, but uh, the kind of legacy of those local option votes 
kind of remains, there's traces mm-hmm. of it remaining, particularly in parts of Scotland where you have kind of areas that were once dry that have fewer fewer outlets than, than other areas. I think the interesting thing about um, the, the temperance movement as well that is it's unfamiliar in some respects, but it's, I think it's familiar in other ways because it was it had a lot of the uh, kind of dynamics of social movements that we would recognise today. It was mm. um, very influential politically, even though it's not that clear how popular temperance was within mm. the general population. The advocates were very sophisticated; right. they were very effective, and political parties had to respond to their advocacy and found it themselves tying themselves up in knots sometimes trying to get it right and trying to get their positioning right right um it was very doctrinaire at times it had a kind of utopian wing which was all about the transformation of society through the expulsion of alcohol and it had a kind of pragmatist wing which was about moderate drinking and Mm. reducing the attractiveness of pubs or increasing prices on on alcohol and as with any social movement the radicals hated the moderates more than they hated the, the, the trade, right? <laughs> that's a familiar thing I think we can probably see today. But the other thing about the temperance movement that's interesting is it was also politically very diverse. I mean, mm. you, the stereotype is, is of kind of blue-stocking, finger-wagging social conservatives. But actually, there was a big socialist temperance movement, and their their whole argument was that industry pays its, 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 its workers at the factory and then persuades them to spend their money back in the, in, in, in the pub. So, the, you know, the brewer and the factory owner have a nice cycle of, of money and, and the worker, you know, experiences that as pleasure, even though they're being ripped off. You know? Yeah, the, this is the fascinating relationship, which is that very often temperance was seen as a cause of the left and the progressive left. And very often, rightly or wrongly, brewers were seen to be on the side of conservatives and it was a sort of popular working class conservatism uh, pushing back at that and saying the workers at the very least have the right to a pint of ale in the evenings, that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, Kit Hardy was a temperance uh, supporter, mm. you know. Uh, uh, this, there was the, the, the socialist temperance argument was, was all about capitalism, the capitalist interests, both withdrawing labor and withdrawing the wages through a kind of pleasure that wasn't actually, you know, uh, uh, that, that, that was actually destructive in, in its right. own way. There was also uh, Irish nationalism was very tied up with with temperance mm-hmm. in the 19th and early 20th century. There was this slogan, Ireland sober is Ireland free. And, 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 and that was about the idea that colonial power was reinforced if you distracted uh, the people from political organisation through drunkenness, and there was there were elements of that in abolitionism in America as well. In fact, the slave narrative of Frederick Douglass talks a little bit about the slaves being allowed out to get drunk and then to, and then to come back. It was a way of diffusing political resistance. Um, that was the socialist argument. That was the nationalist argument. So it was a very complicated set of arguments going on around at the time. Now, um, David Lloyd George was the Prime Minister during and after World War I. Um, can you tell us a bit more about his legacy on drink? Yeah, I mean, it was partly him and it was partly the times that he was living in. But I mean, mm. Lloyd George was, was broadly kind of sympathetic with, 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 with the temperance movement. But with the uh, outbreak of World War I, there was a real push, actually interesting, from shipbuilders initially, mm-hmm. primarily, who were concerned, and munitions factories as well, who were, were concerned about worker productivity and efficiency. Also concerns about uh, soldiers getting drunk on the way to the front, and so the language of the temperance movement kind of shifted around that time, away from one that was to do with moral concerns and the family and um, Victorian kind of interests, to one about productivity uh, and and the idea that we needed to constrain alcohol because it was reducing our ability to be an effective war machine. Mm. Again, this was one of those periods where prohibition was not 
off the cards. It was discussed at the highest level, mm-hmm. but the the resolution that was come to eventually was the establishment of a thing called the Central Control Board, which uh, laid out new, quite strict regulations on mm-hmm. opening hours, on buying rounds, but also very interestingly, nationalised the drink industry in and around Carlisle, which is mm-hmm. a big manufacturing kind of area. And what became known as the Carlisle Experiment was that for decades after that, the um, the, the pubs and the brewers, breweries in Carlisle were owned by the state and run by the state on a, a wage-based system. So the idea was that landlords wouldn't be incentivized to sell lots of alcohol. And from the First World War itself, you have those emergency temporary measures brought in around restricting uh, licensing hours so that factory workers don't get drunk during working hours, that kind of thing. And of course, these temporary emergency measures are still in place for about 90 years after that. Well, yes. I mean, the, the, the emergency measures introduced in World War I really set the, they set the framework for licensing regulations right up until the mid-2000s, more or less. Because I, I remember, just for our younger listeners, you, you couldn't get a drink after 3pm in the pub. You had to wait in the afternoon until the evening. Hard to imagine these days. And also, I think what was established in World War I, it, it's, in terms of licensing at least, was this idea that the job of licensing was to kind of almost assume that you wouldn't allow alcohol to be sold, but you would as long as opening hours were adhered to and you know uh, there were constraints on that sale. What happened in the mid 2000s with the reform of licensing in 2003 was there was a kind of an about there was a, a kind of shift in that whereby the basic assumption was actually retailers have the right to sell alcohol at any time so we had to come what was dubbed 24 hour licensing at the time and the assumption was that, you, that licensing authorities would say yes to any application unless there was a, a good reason not to so it kind of shifted the balance from assume no and you know but but here are the limitations if we can say yes to assume yes unless there are these uh, contraventions of, of, the, of the goals, of, of the licensing outcomes, as they're called. How have views on alcohol addiction and rehabilitation changed over the years? Hugely. I mean, addiction is a, is a, is a whole fascinating thing in itself. You know, we didn't have a concept of addiction really until the 18th century. And, and, and then over the following couple of hundred years, our ideas about what addiction meant and therefore how you should treat it that changed significantly, you know, and, and the kind of questions that, I mean, prior to the 18th century, the idea was that it was just, a, it was sinful, you know, if you, if you drank too much, you, you, it was sinful. But what happened was there was a move towards framing addiction as a disease. But then the question was, well, what kind of disease is it? Is it a physical disease? Is it a psychological disease? Is it one that you're born with? Is it one that develops? Um, you know, how, how do you treat it? Do you treat it just through abstaining? Do you treat it through psychological interventions? Do you treat it through medical interventions, drug therapies, electroshock therapies, all the other things that have been used over time to try and address uh, addiction. Um, and, and still today, you know, the debates around what addiction is and mm. how it emerges and how we should think about it are still far from resolved. Now, when the book we're discussing was published in 2009, the 24-hour licensing laws in Britain were still pretty new. How do you think attitudes have changed since then? Well, I mean, there's been a number of kind of interesting social changes since then, probably the most significant of which is that there's been a significant fall in drinking amongst younger people. And that's not just in the UK, that's across much of the, much of the world. Um, there's, there's been this kind of very interesting shift in attitudes towards drinking amongst the young. That's not the first time that's happened. It also happened in the 
1930s, it's happened at other times as well. These things can often go in quite long waves. But there's also been a shift politically. You know, in the mid-2000s, alcohol, and particularly social disorder associated with alcohol, was a big hot-button political issue. Headlines about Binge Britain were were, were mm. commonplace in, in the tabloids. It was talked about a lot as, a, as a, a pressing kind of social problem. That really has dialed down a lot, I, th- I think, since then. 24-hour drinking didn't lead to a kind of an apocalypse, but neither did it introduce a utopian continental drinking mm. culture. You know, th- I think that um, the biggest change really has been, actually, it's not about when pubs are open. It's been about the shift away from pubs and bars to home drinking. That's been that's been the other big social right. shift. And the, the proliferation of the availability of alcohol in supermarkets and corner shops and online and the kind of the, 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 the degree to which alcohol has just become a kind of more normal part of home life as distinct from being something that you do out of home in pubs. And uh, last question. I mean, this is a fascinating topic and you, you've had, I see, a fascinating career in a number of sort of public policy positions around drug and alcohol addiction and so forth. Um, how did you become so interested in this topic in the first place? Well, I... Uh, Giving away my age, so I'm Generation X, and, and, and we're, we're a heavy drinking generation. If you look, if you look at the if you look at the popul- you look at levels of consumption, that population. And when I was when I was young, you know, get, having your first drink or getting served in a pub, that was a that was a rite of passage. It was a real rite of passage, and it was fascinating. It was always fascinating to me that I still remember getting served my first pint in a pub, and it was this kind of magical moment. I'd entered this new phase, and then um, so I was always kind of interested by that. And, I went on to do my first degree was actually in English literature. I found myself writing about lots of books, especially early 20th century modernist fiction, where alcohol was everywhere. I was doing, doing James Joyce and Ernest Hemingway and Malcolm Lowry and um, F. Scott Fitzgerald. And, people, and drink was everywhere. And I, I, I got fascinated with what is drink doing in these texts? Yeah. How is it representing ideas about drinking? How is it representing ideas about the self and about mm. language? Anyway, that kind of that kind of grew into a wider interest in how I suppose historically throughout history, not just how we've what our drinking behaviours have been, but how mm. the way we talk about alcohol, the way we represent drinking, how all those things shape our attitudes, and how those attitudes are then reflected in our behaviours. So that's been you know that's kind of been my interest over this time. Thank you so much. Uh, James's wonderfully detailed and original book, The Politics of Alcohol, A History of the Drink Question in England, is available from Manchester University Press. And thank you for joining us, dear listeners. We'll be back only too soon with another edition for your delectation. And if you enjoy the podcast, remember that you can support us on Patreon from just £3 a month. You'll be supporting our ever-expanding catalogue of shows, including The Bunker, Oh Good What Now, Origin Story, and our new morning offering, Paper Cuts. Thanks for listening. Until next time. The Bunker Daily was presented by Seth Tevel. The group editor was Andrew Harrison. The managing editor was Jacob Jarvis. And the producers were Liam Tate and me, Alex Reese. Our direction by James Parrott. Music by Kelly Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.